episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We honour their histories, cultures and traditions of storytelling. Hello and welcome to Plated Three Food Memories. I'm your host, Savas Savas. For a quarter of a century, my catering company, Plated, has contributed food experiences for some of Australia's most extravagant and intimate soirees. Food connects us. It connects us to people, to places and to moments in time. These memories shape who we are and what we value. So come and break bread with my guests and I as they share their food memories, revealing far more about themselves than what they've tasted. Our guest on this episode of Plated is a walking, talking public service announcement you'll want to hardwire into your shopping basket. Tan Trong, or the fruit nerd as he's affectionately known, is a passionate fruiterer and produce expert who really, really, really loves fruit. You might have seen him on Plate of Origin or The Chef's Line, and it's likely you've seen his How to Pick the Perfect Avocado video, which has had more than 5 million views and saved many people from avo despair. Tan, welcome to Plated. I feel like getting fruity. How are you feeling? <laughs> Let's definitely get fruity. There's always a moment of every day, every meal to have a piece of fruit. Tan, you bring so much joy and enthusiasm to your audiences. How did the fruit nerd start? When I was young, I I had a very privileged upbringing from a fruit point of view. My parents were fruiterers. They sold fruit and my whole extended family sold fruit. But I didn't appreciate it when I was younger and I kind of just, you know, pushed it aside and it was just kind of like fruit on the table every meal. And I think as I grew older um, and certainly uh, working for Coles supermarkets, I started to realise that all that fantastic fruit I had when I was a child, I wasn't able to have anymore and I wasn't able to seek anymore. And I think with food, food is a an, an adventure. It's a very visceral memory where you might not be able to explain it. You might not have the explanatory power to, to explain to people why you love that mandarin so much, but it's in your memory, just like a good pasta is, you know, that an Italian family might have that they're nonna cooks. And for me, I have that with fruit, right? I, I, I remember the best mangoes, the best KP mangoes from Northern Queensland. Just one piece of fruit would have so much aroma and perfume that your whole car would be so much, you'd be winding down the windows just to get a breath of air. And, um, and as I worked for Coles, I realized that the world had changed significantly since then, but also I had had a really privileged upbringing. And so the Fruit Note came about by wanting to give people those experiences that I had as a child of a fruiterer. And probably nearly all of us have never been trained or taught to pick a good piece of fruit or vegetable. And I thought, why hasn't anybody taught people to to pick good fruit because we eat with our eyes only and that is such a mistake it's one of five senses we have but that's got nothing to do with flavor and so for me through all of my experiences I want to teach people to eat well again because my journey my passion well what, what I would love is for people to pick up the perfect Fuji apple that has the flat bottom it is perfectly matured off the tree that is not only sweet, but has complex flavors of tanginess, sourness, and balance of sweetness. So they won't pick up a Mars bar instead of an apple because they'll eat the apple instead because they know how to pick the apple. And I can guarantee you that my children love fruit just as much as they love candy and chocolate, but that's not the same for everyone. So I want to try to bring that, that even if you have that one experience in your life, it'll hold with you forever and you'll demand that expectation whenever you eat fruit. So let's go back a little bit to when you said you joined the supermarket and the world had changed. What had specifically changed? I felt as though fruit had been very, very standardised and it became harder and harder to pick a good piece of fruit. I mean, we would have test boxes come in every day and we'd need to test them. I ate an avocado every day 
for nearly an entire year uh, whilst at Coles because I was a national buyer for avocados. And they would be from Queensland, they'd be from New South Wales, the tri-state region, Mildura, they'd have some from WA, we'd have New Zealand avocados and they all taste different, right? And, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of terroir, which in wine is kind of like the land, you know, the, the environment, the weather, and it's the same with avos. And it was, it was my mission to kind of understand why they were different and try to figure out what was, what would lead to the best avo, not a very, very standardized, same shape, just a standard avocado flavor as the national buyer buying millions of avos a year. That was your mission. That was my mission on the side of obviously you know, meeting financial targets and make, making sure I hit a KPIs and making sure our sales are right every week. And it was because I had the privilege of having all of these boxes come in every week because we had to test them for dry matter, for oil content, for size, shape, um, maturity, softness. So most of the things that people take for granted, you know, um, that just arrive in a kind of very acceptable state. Um, for me were, were things that we need to work on every day to make sure that they were very, very standardized and more, more commoditized so that we would have the same experience everywhere. And for produce, that's almost, I, I shouldn't say it's unrealistic because it's happened, but it's not the way nature works. And it's not the way that I would like the industry to be, but it is the way that it is. How did that sit with you, that those words, that standardization, commoditization, how did, how, how does that make you feel? Yeah, well, I think it's interesting. I mean, I think I live, you know, for, for, from my perspective, if I wasn't in that role, I mean, of course, in that role, there are things that you believe in and things that you don't believe in. Um, but if I wasn't in that role, somebody else would do it, be doing the same role as I would. So I felt as though, you know, when, when I was in that position, I was asked to do those things. I would do them to the best of my ability. But whether I believed in some of those or not, especially the beauty standards, which avocados require or any produce requires, you know, I don't really believe in that. No, not for sure. I don't believe in the shape and size. So for every state, they range a certain sized avocado. And I was like, no, and actually went against um, what they had asked for one week because I said, there's not going to be enough fruit on the shelves and I'm going to break the specification that we have for our state in order to get enough fruit on the shelves. And I felt as that was more important. And at the end of the day, they actually, they actually congratulated me for making sure there was enough stock because it was a period of very, very short supply, not like we are now. So um, of course there are things that I believe in and I don't, I still think society runs as it, as it does. I can't affect everything and I'm, I'm realistic in that, in that way. But I know if I can just change one person's mind, if I can change 10 people's mind to eat better, to, to have a little bit more knowledge, or even just for a moment want to buy an apple or an avocado instead of something else, um, I've done my job. I want to say you have a, a very charming relationship with the fourth wall. When you stare down the barrel of the camera lens, who do you imagine you're sharing your knowledge with and talking to? Because I feel you're talking directly to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't say that I thought I'd be talking to myself. When I was younger, you know, there was no, there was no Asians on TV for one. There were no fruiterers on TV besides Con the Fruiterer, who's more of a comic comedian than a, than a fruiterer. And, and I have met him before. He's a very, very charming guy. So I would probably say that I was talking, would be talking to a younger me who had wished and hoped that there'd be somebody to educate me in this regard. And for me, I won't know everything. I won't be able to figure out everything in my lifetime. Not every fruit, that's for, of course, and not every vegetable. But I find it as though my work is there to be worked on by somebody else after me. And um, I feel for me, I have the fortune of being in a space where nobody really has grabbed it with both hands. We definitely take it for granted. Everyone on this planet eats fruit and vegetables. They might not all meet, eat, might not all eat meat. They might not all eat seafood, but they most certainly eat produce. And because of that, we take it for granted because we eat it every day. Um, it has become almost the right, not a privilege. And in other cultures, it is a privilege to eat certain produce and certain fruit and veg in season. And we've lost that in good and bad ways. So yeah, I would, I would say that I would be talking to a younger me in many ways. Uh, and 
you know, I have been on many cooking shows. And for me, when I was younger, I always thought I wanted to be somebody uh, on screen or spruiking and promoting produce in a way that's not 299, 399, not talking about price. I'd be talking to people and showcasing them a story about how these cherries have had to survive a frost. And the only way that they survived the frost was by calling in a helicopter to blow away the zero degree winds so that warmer winds from above would come down to make the cherry survive. And that's, that's how much these cherries have gone through. Nobody's ever told me that story before and why these cherries are so expensive or why they're so plump and beautiful. It's because they've survived the strongest, coldest night in the middle of summer. That is much more powerful to me than a, you know, a 1099 yell. Um, even though I love the markets and I love the vibe and the feel, I wanted to tell people the, the real story of fruit and vegetables, which has never been told in my view. From this conversation, I really feel that we need more. We need more intel from grassroots suppliers, don't we? From the providers to get that. They need to talk. You are absolutely right, Salva. And I think the reason why I am really privileged to have lived this life is one, I'm the son of a fruiterer who owned a fruit store. So I have exposure to many different fruits and vegetables, most of which we sell here in Australia. Secondly, I worked for the second largest supermarket chain in Australia, and I was exposed to all the things at the back end, whether that's ripening, whether that's cold storing, whether that's um, understanding why there is certain packages and so much plastic and, and all that, right? I understand it all. But lastly, I've been able to work in the wholesale and the, in the markets. And the thing with the wholesalers is each one of the wholesalers is there is a potato expert. There is an onion expert. There's myself, an Asian vegetable and tropical fruit expert. There is a citrus expert. As in there is just one person literally selling mandarins, aforas, uh, honey mercots, uh, valentias, navels, you betcha, right? Like all the different types of lemons. And they only know that one thing. And I have access to these masters of these fields. Imagine if you were to go to a fishmonger who had access to the fishermen who only caught tuna and caught tuna not only in one spot but in many different spots and could tell you the difference between the different tuners the different areas and catchment areas and why they taste different and why they taste different at certain times of the year um, I have that fortune and so I hope to tell those stories um, for them and it, it, it shouldn't be just me you know uh, I, I hope that there are more more of me in the future um, to really bring out the good word in, in the industry. Tan, let's start with your first food memory. Okay, so my first food memory was when I was a kid and I think I briefly may have mentioned this before, but I had a lot of mangoes when I was a, was a, when I was a child. It is my dad's favourite fruit. And we always had mangoes in summer. Um, and both my parents worked and I'm one of five children. So my mum's really, really busy. And often we'd always have rice in the rice cooker. And sometimes we would just eat mangoes and rice. And I thought that was such a weird combo. It's probably something that most people don't have, you know, just mangoes and rice. But somehow I managed to really enjoy it. And it's probably because the mangoes that my dad brought home were so fantastic. But I think simple foods like that, which my mum made, I really enjoyed. Um, and she would cut them like wonderfully for me. And, and there's also some other dishes that she'd make. And I know everybody has wonderful stories of their mum. And I guess for this one, it's really personal for me because this dish, which she often cooked for me, is almost like what most people would consider like blue cheese for other people that don't like blue cheese. But it's bitter melon soup. Now, have you ever had bitter melon before, Sala? I have had bitter melon. With, well, yeah, funnily enough, I have it a lot with chicken stock. Oh yes, so okay. Yeah. yeah, that's a that's a great combo, and you you must like it then if you have it often. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's just really easy. I just get it from the little fruit man down the road. He always has a Mister Suffer. You want? It's like no, okay, and then he just puts it in my bag, and I'm done. <laughs> well, it's a great combo, right? Now, bitterness is it bitterness, sourness, tanginess? You'll probably often avoid more than than not, especially bitterness. Now, bitter melon is exactly what it is: bitter. And for some reason, I love it. And then as I grew older, I started to realize there are a lot of things that we like that are bitter. Coffee is bitter. We love coffee. Chocolate, dark chocolate is bitter. We love dark chocolate. But I think the thing with bitter melon and the reason why it's so polarizing, even amongst the Vietnamese community, is because it has a very sharp bitterness. And 
I think for really good cooks, like my mum, by the time we had made a very heavy pork broth and had balanced all the flavours, the ginger in there, and then you have the chilli sauce, you've got a balance of chilliness, bitterness, the sweetness from the meat and the pork broth soup. And so it does work. Eating it straight, probably not palatable for a lot of people. Um, and it's certainly more culturally significant for my family and the Vietnamese community because bitter melon is called kowa, which means to pass a hardship. And so it's always eaten right before Lunar New Year, never after, because if you eat it after Lunar New Year, like the first few days, it almost sounds like you have hardship for the whole year. So you eat it a few days before Lunar New Year to show that you're passing the hardship or the hardship is coming, is, is going to pass over. So um, for me, we'd eat it probably every week. And I always thought that in order to be a fruit nerd or in order to spruik produce, I needed to almost be a chef because in the food media world, the chefs are the only real ones that, you know, get the publicity in the newspapers, in the magazines. And so, you know, I took it upon me to get onto MasterChef and, and uh, you know, do the like. I, I, I learned all of my mum's recipes and I tried to master every piece of produce which we sold personally at our business. Funnily enough, I got to the top 100 of MasterChef and I cooked this dish, but they hated it. The producers hated it. And it was not the right time. It was not neither the right moment. I did not have the right story for it as well. And it was one that I've always wanted to showcase and one that I never saw cooked on TV here in Australia when I was young. So um, I was fortunate to be on Plate of Origin and my goal was to get to the final. Whether I won or not, that was... You know. When you presented the dish on Plate of Origin and the, the judges responded well to it, how did you feel about that? Of, of course, a sigh of relief because I couldn't have you know, stuffed up my mum's dish and, and, and done her not proud. Uh, but there was just this journey of this dish that was so important to me. It was, you know, it's one of my favourite. It, well, it is my mum's, my favourite dish that my mum cooks. Um, and the produce, which is the hero of the dish, the bitter melon, is right in the centre. It is the core flavour, even though it needs to be balanced. And for me to have balanced this dish for all Australians to see, and it's a dish that my mum cooks for us, um, yeah, it just made me really proud because for me, it wasn't about winning. It was about It was about showcasing the love that my parents gave to me through cooking and showing that my tongue listened to every meal that I ate and I remembered those flavours and I'm putting them on the table here for everyone to see and to be judged as well um, because regardless of whether they didn't like it or not, if I knew that I cooked the dish to the best of my ability and it was as good as my parents or better, that I would be happy because that's the kind of food that I ate and it's the kind of food that I'm proud of and, and I want people to know that. Um, whether it gets a zero out of 10 or a 10 out of 10, you know, these are, these are just cooking shows. But for me, that was more important to me, my family, and for the Vietnamese community to see that. So going, so to speak, rogue with what we're not used to, (laughs) you were able to really, you know, win people over. You're, You're from a Vietnamese background. Were you born in Australia? Yeah, so I was born here, my brothers were born here, and my sisters were born in Vietnam. So I'm one of five. And we what number have in the five very... are you? <laughs> I'm number five. <laughs> the, the baby. <laughs> the baby, yeah. So that's, I have a very strong Australian accent compared to my family. Why did your parents decide to come to Australia? Well, they didn't have a choice. They were boat people. So uh, my parents were living in a, uh, a UN camp in Malaysia, on an island in Malaysia, for two years before they re- received asylum to Australia. So um, I guess at that time, anywhere was better than the war. They fled right after the end of the war. So, yeah, we're very, very lucky to be here. Very, very lucky. And um, I am reminded of that every day. And so how did your father get into the fruit business? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's a really interesting question. I mean, my dad worked many, many jobs. I really, I never ever saw him when I was a kid because he worked pretty much to the bone. Um, but we ended up falling into produce uh, because he actually opened a Asian grocery store and he did sell some fruit. 
um, but he couldn't. He often couldn't find fruit and vegetables that were, that were significant to our community. So he went to seek them, um, and you know he'd often ask you know Aussie farmers to grow certain produce for him because they didn't have it at the time. Certain vegetables. Um, it all really started with uh, one of the big rollers, which is nashi's. So nashi is kind of like a very juicy pear. And it's really sought after in in Vietnam, in China, Japan. It's it's native to Japan, China, Korea, and uh, that really wasn't a thing back in the nineties. There was only one grower. Ended up being my dad's best friend now. But he, my dad used to drive to the farm to pick up all of the nashis and then distribute it around Melbourne in his truck. And uh, he started to kind of get these strong relationships with farmers uh, whilst being an Asian fruiterer. And then now, obviously, over you know the last thirty-five years or so, he's developed, and we've now gone on to become a wholesaler and distributor and agent for uh, many Australian farms. Do you or other siblings are they involved in the business? What do they do? They are. Um, they all help part time, um, but I'm really the only one that's full time that has worked in the industry before and kind of studied in that space. But uh, my brother, my brother-in-law, they're both in there, um, and my sister too. And they, they're very, very talented people, you know, lawyers and, and engineers, and they're just helping out in a way, especially through the pandemic. And we're really, really lucky for them to have, to have them on board. But I wouldn't say that they're a fruit nerd, but they're still quite knowledgeable <laughs> in the fruit space. What do they make of you being a fruit nerd? I think they're really proud of me. Uh, I think my family never believed that somebody could be on TV talking about fruit and veg. They'd never seen it before, just like I had never saw it before. And every single time that I had pitched doing produce before to a lot of the different networks here in Australia, most people would be like, we've done the seasonality thing and it doesn't work. And I would be like, but you've never met anybody like me. And I don't want to talk about seasonality because one, I kind of don't believe in seasonality because I believe in produce of the moment because you can't just say mangoes are in season or cherries are just in season there's a certain point in time in the season when the cherries are eating great. You know, you could pick mangoes way earlier, but they're kind of bland and tasteless. And at the very end, they're kind of overripe and alcoholic. So, and even the whole idea of seasonality has kind of been wiped out in, in, in our modern society. So let me explain it to you. And I think every single time I've sat down face-to-face with somebody or over a Zoom, it's been a completely different conversation. And um, even with my work with ABC initially, it was it was more about cooking, and then we had the opportunity to do some fruit. and And when I was able to just have that one chance, I'd kind of felt as though my whole life was like I've just wanted this one chance. And you can you can ask me to talk about anything, and I will talk about it more courageously and obsessively than anyone you have ever met. And ironically, the first video that I ever made was avocados, which I probably spend more time than most other fruit but um but yes look you know for every fruiter you might think you might think oh you know they they do know a lot or they don't know a lot or they don't they can't explain it well but they have the hands of a fruiter they've touched thousands of pieces of fruit they watch the fruit from 7 a.m in the morning to 6 p.m and that they know when things are going bad they know why it's going bad and they can they they can give you the um the ex- experience that they have. They might be like, oh, you know, like a nonna that doesn't know the full recipe but can cook it. You just have to watch bit of them. This, bit of that. They'll be like, yeah. yeah, this is good. And it's kind of been my mission to unravel that from like a scientific methodical point of view to be like, well, you know what? That is true. And my dad is very much that side of experience. He can't really explain things, but he knows when he opens it, the smell, the humidity, but he can't really explain it. And I've watched him for so long that I've then got like my temp gun out, you know, I'm scanning for the temperature, I'm checking the weight. I'm because of my knowledge in this space, um, having worked for Coles and, and being part of a slightly more sophisticated machine. Um, you know, I'm weighing the fruit the next day I'm weighing it again. I'm seeing if it's losing moisture. I'm checking, you know, for the, uh, the imperfections in the fruit and whether that changes over time more rapidly than the ones that don't have any imperfections. Um, because I watch fruit for the whole day too. And I absolutely sound like a weirdo when I tell you that I watch fruit for the whole day, but um, that's kind of what we do. (laughs) There is conviction there and there is um, 
you've you've got a commitment to what you're doing and and we're all the richer for it so let's get on to your <laughs> second you. food memory sure let's get on to the okay. second one so my second one might so my second food memory is the time when i was cooking on the chef's line and i was cooking vietnamese food and the dish that i decided to make is one that I absolutely adore when I eat at home and it's rice paper rolls. Now, bear with me. Most people eat rice paper rolls like they eat sushi and they're like, oh yeah, it's good, it's nutritious. But the rice paper rolls that you eat at my mum and dad's place is extraordinary. Well, and what you're going to have to do now why. is go it's bit by bit. You're <laughs> going to have to talk through the complete recipe so we get right. a feel of it. There is no recipe, Sava. Oh, here we go. Because <laughs> you build your own rice paper roll. But the reason why it's so good is because it's all based on fresh produce. It's all based on the freshest prawns, the freshest herbs, making sure that your vermicelli is well oiled, not just vermicelli that you boil and you leave to cool down. We use something called bun hoi, which is woven rice vermicelli, and it has a spring onion oil on top. But really importantly, you roll and most time. Have you ever rolled rice paper rolls? I have. Before? I've made a total mess right. of them. Right, <laughs> right. Most I just people eat them. Right. And most people like when they roll a tortilla or a butt, they, they will put too many things in it and it will be like kind of bulging out of their hands when they bite. And, and just like a burger, you'll have, you know, some meat or, or, or prawn or cucumber fly out the side as you bite into it. And Vietnamese food and rice paper rolls is all about balance. So as you get better with rolling your rice paper roll, you get better at balancing the ingredients so that it just fits in so that every bite is beautiful. Now, it's not just about the rice paper roll, it's about the dipping sauce because the dipping sauce really binds it all together because it is a slightly dry kind of vehicle. And um, on the chef's line, I made the rice paper roll, it was delicious. But the thing that really kind of stood out for the show for me was my fish sauce, my nook jum dip. And the reason why it stood out was it was kind of the combination of me cooking my heritage, my parents' influence, but also me as the fruiterer because I replaced what you would usually use, which is lime juice with Australian native finger limes. And I would probably consider myself the first to have ever done that. But that was because I had access to so much produce and I knew what would be good to substitute it with. And for me, that's being a good fruiterer and a good cook at the same time. Um, being a good cook is, is often not so much about following a recipe as so much as being flexible in the moment. And so the finger limes aren't just about the sourness. It's about the textural pop that you get. And when I made the dish, it was almost a acknowledgement to myself, but to others that I'm not just a cook and I'm a fruiterer. And I always wanted to be like that. I always wanted to be like, in the fruit store, what are you cooking? All right, what have I got right now in season? And what can make your dish better? Or, you know, if you usually just use carrots, maybe try parsnips in your oven. And, and why does it taste different? Well, because parsnips have a slight sour taste to them rather than the carrot that has a predominantly sweet taste to them. And it was through that this dish that I really started to get this confidence. I've always, until very recently, and even now, I've always suffered from imposter syndrome. I've, I, I don't know any fruiterers that are often seen on TV or often, you know, spruiking their own produce. And, and so for me, that was the first time that I wasn't just a cook, but I was a fruiterer. What will the fruit nerd look like in his 60s? Oh, you never know. You know, I'm just, I'm just grateful for the today and the tomorrow. You know, I think I learned through my parents that life is so fickle. They were on a boat and half the boats they got in Malaysia were sunk or you know were raided and they didn't you know there are so many people that are you know sadly just lost and for us to be here for me to be here for me to have lived a privileged life and to be able to help people in such a small way um you know I'm just really appreciative there today and so if by the time I'm 60 I could have helped many people or, or at least made them excited about produce not even helped but made them want to eat a piece of produce, that would be enough for me because, uh, yeah, anything can happen. I don't. I try not to take anything for granted. And I don't really look too much into the future. I am very ambitious, but at the same time, I've really scaled it back to think about, look, 
if you just enjoy what you're doing and you have a level head, you're obviously planning for what's happening next year and hoping that it happens and hoping that you're able to, you know, get the contract to produce more, then that's wonderful. But what really matters is just the next dish, as a chef would say, you know, you, you, you're judged by your next video, you're judged by your next piece of produce. And that's, that's really what I want to live by um, every day. Has becoming a father shifted anything or changed anything in the way you approach your work? Definitely. Uh, it's made me more grounded. It's made me more vulnerable and, and, and realizing that my time here is very, very limited. I can remember probably when my son was around three years old and, um, you know, I'm just happy that he's been able to get similar experiences, if not even better fruit experiences than what I had when I was younger. <laughs> but it's, um, look, no, it's definitely changed my mindset because I almost see him as my uh, guinea pig in a way. Uh, because he gets to eat all the good produce. And if it's not good enough for him, who has a complete blank page and palette of what is good and what is tasty. And I feel as though I see the joy when he eats produce and I want people, more people to have that, that experience because I had it when I was younger. And, um, and I, I must people take, take people back to the Mandarin tip that I made, which is that most Mandarins in Australia or a lot of them are dry. And that is one of the most annoying things, but it's not just about dryness. It's about the sweet umami. It's about having that great aroma and great perfume, not just the sweet piece of fruit. But that one tip to help you not pick a dry mandarin is so powerful because that one moment you have a dry mandarin, you're probably not going to have a mandarin or a piece of fruit for weeks. And the studies have shown that people won't pick up that piece of fruit for weeks because they've had that bad experience. So you know, uh, I'm, uh, you know, my kids have kind of challenged me in that sense to, uh, to think of not just my own children, but like more people and more children and that they should be having great experiences. I'd like to move on to your third food memory. My third food memory is, it's a memory where it's a sensorial experience and one that I don't know if I will ever get again. When I think back to the moment when I was in Chantaburi, which is in Thailand, which is a massive fruit district that grows a lot of tropical fruit, my bodily senses were so overwhelmed that even as a fruiterer, I couldn't absorb it all. There were so many foreign things to me. But we were at a market and we were with one of my dad's friends, who is a huge durian trader. Um, and by that, you know, he has farms and he distributes them um, but he took us to a local market to see what was in the area what was in season what was in the moment and there were at least 20 or 30 different varieties of durian now for many people durian is something that is a love or hate it's it's very pungent it's very polarizing isn't it yeah very polarizing it has it, it releases a very strong gas that most people can't handle or, or a lot of people love and um, what I like to tell people is when you pour a bottle of whiskey and you sniff it, say, like you smell it straight away, the, the gas, the ethylene might be too strong. So even whiskey judges sometimes might water down whiskey so that they can taste the flavor because some of the ethylene is too strong. And durian is somewhat the same where there is a really strong aroma that I love and I call a perfume, but if you can't get over the gas, then you can't get to the flavor. You can't get to the aroma. But durian for me is, is such a theatrical experience. It's not just about the flavor. It's not just about the fruit. Firstly, you've got to pick the fruit. Secondly, you've got to open it, right? And it looks like a Bowser shell. So if you don't know the right technique, if it's really sharp, it might spike you. And then once you open it, you don't know if it's good or not. Right? It could be a bad piece of fruit. So this is a whole Russian roulette gambling thing that's happening if you don't know how to pick a durian. And then once you eat it, it's like the most intense fruit experience that you could possibly have. And I put durian in, in a more of a uh, experience flavor, like you would in a Michelin star restaurant. You're not really eating it for nutrients. You're kind of eating it for the experience and, and the moment flavor. Durian is the same. You can't have a lot of it, but there's nothing quite like it. It is so custody. It is so sweet. It is so pungent. So in this moment where I'm in the Chantaburi market, this durian trader who is, you know, as old as my dad, 
has been trading fruit for 30, 40 years, knows every variety in Thailand, is trying to pick the exact maturity which in which he likes to eat durian. And for me, I was like, I had never met anybody who even remotely knew about fruit that could even demand such a request of a, of, of a fruit store. <laughs> and so I was like, I was like, oh my goodness. And how, firstly, how do you even know how ripe a durian is? So they actually get a stick and they whack the stick and they listen to the sound. And when a fruit gets ripe, it's, it gets soft, right? Yeah. So the fruit gets soft, but a durian has a shell. So as the fruit gets ripe, it starts to create a gap between the flesh and the shell. And so you start to get an echo. And the stronger the echo is, the more mature it is. And there will be a point where you can hear the bonk. That echo will be 100% right. But you're just hearing for a light one. But if it's there is no and it's kind of hitting a wall, then it's basically unripe. And unripe fruit is basically around the 75 to 80% maturity. So he's looking for one that's literally like 85 to 87% ripe because in Thailand, durian is eaten crunchy. And what I mean by that is when you bite into the flesh, it's crunchy. But as you bite into the durian, it becomes custody and soft. And that is an art in itself. To be eating the durian at a specific moment of ripeness is, is just, was mind-blowing for me. and. I had, in my mind, I was like, I didn't really know, understand what was happening. We had bought a few fruits. There were different varieties. We'd gotten back to the to the warehouse that um, he, he does business in and he cut all, open all the fruits and he was explaining his really good English. And, and for me, that was one of the moments where you're kind of like sitting with, uh, you know, your Anthony Bourdain or, you know, your, your, your famous chefs around the world and, you know, thinking, wow, I've got, a couple of hours with this amazing fruiterer who you know might not be known to anyone but to me in this moment he is the god he is the hero he is the fruit nerd he is the person that you want to be with when you're walking down the market because there is nobody else that can give you that level of obsession of of passion of enthusiasm energy and will give you the story of that piece of fruit when you're eating it and make you appreciate it in a way that you're thinking about the tree you're thinking about that piece of fruit how old it is and and why the thai people love it like this and why malaysians eat it completely different and like it 100% 110% right they like the fruit dropped off the tree which is also an amazing experience but that's not cultural to them and so for me that moment when i was in the chantaburi market and tirachai who was the man who i consider my uncle um, taking us through and searching the for, for that optimal fruit um, that will live with me to the day I die because I have never had that experience before and I may never have that again. I just want to ask you, how would your friends and family describe your temperament? I, I was given the name Fruit Nerd by my friends. I would think that they think that I'm energetic. I think when you have that passion for something that comes from within or that fire you know I, I always think that there's a fire in me and that it's growing and and I've always been somebody who if I wasn't interested in it I'd do really poorly but if I was really interested in it I would try harder than anybody I know to make it work or to to make it yeah to to just love it so much to to study it so much that um, that I would be the best that I could be in it, not best that better than anybody, just the best that I could be in it. Um, and I, I've seen how hard my parents have worked. And if I'm even 20% of how hard my father has worked when I was a child um, or when he was my age, then, you know, I'd be, I'd be sleeping every second, you know, even though I've been up since 2am this morning. Um, <laughs> that kind of really drives me. And I think that, that my friends see that energy, that fire in me. And they saw it. They called me the fruit nerd. They named me the fruit nerd. They donned me that name because they almost know nothing can stop me when I'm kind of in that mode, in that moment. And and uh, I kind of hope that that's 
that's something that that I take with me and with all my days because I think when I'm when I see it and I'm when I see a piece of produce and it excites me, I just want to know everything about it, and um, that's when the fruit nerd's alive. Well, your career as the fruit nerd is is clearly progressing with many fantastic opportunities. What do you think of your popularity, and what do you want to do, and where do you want to go next? I mean, I've never really, I've never really wanted to be one that's popular. I've never sought it. Um, as I mentioned, I always had imposter syndrome. Uh, and I still do have it today, um, but it's getting much better. And for me, it's when I when when I see people when I've given people a piece of information and they've used it and they've had a good experience. That's all I really want. That makes me shine. That makes me happy. Um, I know I live and die by the next piece of tip that I give people. Otherwise, I'm just me normally, and I certainly at work am just literally just the fruiterer. And that's kind of what I want to be known by. I'm a non-fancy buy a guy. I, I don't I I buy the produce that is on discount. That's the kind of person that I am. If I see it and it's it's still good to eat, um, then I and I suggest that to the listeners of this podcast that you know if if you're not looking at that clearance table at a fruit store, you should. I use it all the time. It's my my last <laughs> stop in the fruit market. I go and I see what's there, and it's great. That's where I get creative. I just lit up yes. then because you feel like, wow, I've been given an opportunity. Did you see me just light up now? I love that stand. I'm just like, okay, how am I going to master this one? Take it on. Yes. And there's always something there. 100%. And and, and uh, I think that you're, a, I think that you must be a great cook as well because, um, and a confident, not a great, a confident cook because you can go in without a recipe and go, I don't care what it is. I'm going to cook it and it's going to, you know, I might not do well at it, but that's okay. I'll keep improving. But, you know, I'm, 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 I'm looking at what's there and what's good or what's available uh, instead of going in with a recipe and being very rigid because um, the confidence in cooking isn't there. I draw, I draw from my experience and what I know, mm. but you said something that you, you've mentioned imposter syndrome. That is the driver for me to keep going. It drives me to move forward. It is a it is a driver, um, and um, you know I'm lucky to call Matt Preston my friend, and he asked me, "What do you want to do, Tan?" And I said, "Well, I kind of said I don't know because he's kind of asking me in this moment." And I said, "I said, well, I kind of want to educate people about produce, but then I thought to myself over the many years of being the fruit nerd before fruit nerd was even a thing, that education isn't really as important anymore, just." entertaining or keeping somebody's attention is more important in our world of social media. And so, you know, it is mixed between just entertaining people in a lighthearted way to give them maybe a piece of education, but if not, just to entertain them, to inspire them to want to eat more produce. That's kind of what I wanted to do. Um, and Matt said to me, I've never met anyone like you before. And, you know, he talked about his own journey in journalism before MasterChef. And he said, it took me 10 years to even start writing on a national level for food. And he said, if you spend 10, the next 10 years, and I thought to myself, oh my God, 10 years? <laughs> it's like 10 years. There will be nobody who has written or talked about as much fruit and veg content because nobody really has before than you. And so if that's what it takes to get to where you want to be, uh, you know, getting all the opportunities to spruik, you know, onions in Australia or whatever it is. Well, that's what you've got to do. And, you know, for me, it took me 10 years and that really inspired me and kind of somewhat broke my imposter syndrome because imposter syndrome, you kind of think I want to get over it overnight. I want to do it tomorrow. I want to do it next month. I want, I want something to happen, an event to happen for me to kind of get the confidence. And, and that kind of really brought to me the understanding that it is a journey you know a 10-year journey to kind of not really get to where I want to be because getting somewhere it's the wrong idea because once you get there then you kind of think where to next I think it's about every piece of produce and having that underlying values of wanting to help community of wanting to give people advice in a good way to enrich their lives um, and something that 
you know, it's not just going to be a 30 second or one minute video that they're going to watch and swipe up and then forget for the rest of their lives. But if they think about it and go, okay, that's how I pick an avocado. And every single time they go into a store, they know how to pick a good avocado. And for the rest of their life, they're eating a good avocado. Then it's worth it. That's, that's what I want to do. And, and he made that clear to me after kind of throwing this gauntlet of kind of 10 years time. And I'm like, 10 years. And like, and I'm like, when I broke it down and I kind of thought, well, you know, if it took 10 years for him, it might even take me longer. But if I'm enjoying the moments as they come along and I'm getting the opportunities to, um, I'm, I am happy. Now I'd like to talk about your social cause and it's Hmm. completely obvious to me why you've chosen this one. The woman that heads up this course wrote an extraordinary book called The Cook's Companion, and it is in every single good kitchen in Australia. So can you tell us about Stephanie Alexander's cause that you'd like to promote? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, as, I, as I've mentioned throughout the podcast, I believe in education, um, but I know that it's kind of been whittled down and, you know, for, for our, our younger generation, you know, attention span is really difficult to hold. And so engagement is, is really important. And I think with Stephanie Alexander's Kitchen Garden Foundation, we know good habits. We know good habits in eating, whether it's nutrition, flavor, taste. It all starts when you're younger. Um, most kids these days, unfortunately, have never stepped foot on a farm. And there's some really ridiculous statistic, like 80 or 90% of kids under 10 have never stepped on foot on a farm. And it's you know likely to be true. Um, and that's why I think the program is so important because my nephews have done it and I know that they've planted seeds. I know that they've seen the celery grow and they've had to cook it. And, and those small programs aren't in our education system today. You know, we aren't forced to do subjects that will force us to understand how to cook a simple meal, even though it's probably one of the most important skills in life that, you know, we'll have to carry forever. And I think growing food is really important. And Stephanie Alexander's Kitchen Garden Foundation is at the core of ensuring that kids these days understand where food comes from. Because one, it'll either just come from the shelf at a supermarket if they don't realize that it's coming from the soil. And two, when you realize how hard it is to grow just one lettuce and that, you know, it's in, it's it has to go through all of this terrible weather. It has to go, it has to fight off all the insects and it has to do so many different things. You wouldn't waste food like we waste today. And I'm so strong about that. I'm so strong about, you know, people just growing one tomato plant and realizing how hard it is to yield just a couple of tomatoes. If you don't have the right soil, if you're not putting the right fertilizer in, if you're not treating it right, if you're not watering it all day. And then if you don't net it during the, the summer season, because the birds will get there before you you wouldn't waste food like we waste food today. And that's why I think these programs that are in schools today that Stephanie Alexander has championed is so important and um, can't be underestimated. And I hope that it continues to grow and I hope other programs evolve from it. My last question, give me your top three fruits. Ah, oh, yeah, that's, that's an easy one because everybody always asks me. <laughs> And I can explain it very clearly. And they do change over time. Um, but my favorite fruit um, is cherries. And the reason for it is, one, it's super Moorish. And that is the number one factor for being a good fruit. If you can't eat a fruit and want more of it, it's good, but it's not good enough. Now, with cherries, you have this, some cherries have a very intense sourness and intense sweetness. And that level of sourness and sweetness, the ability to eat the skin, to eat it in one go, the convenience of it, no other fruit really has it. And the other thing with cherries is it still is one of those pieces of produce that you just cannot commoditize. Apples are completely commoditized, but with cherries, if it rains tomorrow, all the cherries in the next few days, they're going to be all split because of the rain and there's going to be rot or whatever it is so you're, you're pretty much looking at every week something is happening it's a different varietal you know so you're always looking for that produce of the moment and when you eat that wonderful cherry you just don't know when you're going to have another one again and that ephemeral nature of cherries is why cherries is my number one fruit my number two fruit is durian and that's because it's a different experience it's not moorish um, i've explained it's very theatrical you have to pick a, a variety you like first you have to pick it at the right maturity 
and then you don't know if it's going to be good or bad. Probably half the people in the room will want to evacuate the room by the time you've started to open it. And then by the time you eat it, you know, you kind of, you're, there's an intense feeling. And for many Asians, it's kind of once you eat it, you're like, oh, this is something that the whole family eats just one durian that might cost you $50 and you all sit down there, you open it, you watch it being opened, you share it and then you kind of like enjoy it. And then you're like, ah, that was a delight. Right. And my third favorite fruit is somewhat behind cherries, but it has many of the elements that cherries has, but it's mangosteen. So if durian is the king of fruit, uh, mangosteen is the queen of fruit. And when you break apart the purple little golf ball sized fruit with the lovely clove top, um, you get almost these garlic clove looking shaped white bulbs or segments, and they have a very intense sour and sweetness. The Moorish factor of a mangosteen is unprecedented, and most people will just absolutely devour it. And it is this Moorish factor. And mangosteens are just overall such a wonderful fruit. It's always a nine, nine and a half out of 10, depending, it doesn't really matter. It's always going to be a good experience. Now, I love all fruits, so I shouldn't say that I have favorites. But um, if you were to ask me if it's the last fruit that I'd eat um, on my dining table, it would be a piece of cherry. Tan, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. It was great to be on. That's it for this episode of Plated 3 Food Memories. For more details on Stephanie Alexander's Kitchen Garden, just search for kitchengardenfoundation.org.au. Plated 3 Food Memories is made in partnership with World Stories, produced and edited by Lauren McWhirter and original score by Russell Torrance. We'd love it if you could spread the Plated podcast joy, tell your mates, leave us a review and follow for more. Make sure to keep an eye on the world stories and plated Insta accounts to keep up to date with everything 3Food Memories. Just search for Plated by Sava, that's Sava with a double V, and World Stories, W-E-L-D Stories. Bye for now. Ora kali.